0: We've done it before that the hole in the ozone layer was addressed with the Montreal Protocol, and it was addressed so effectively by just some basic top-down decision-making. Granted, climate change is a lot bigger and it requires bottom-up action, but when 8 billion people get behind an idea, we certainly have the potential to, to change the system.
1: Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Krista Crum, Esri Analyst Relations Lead, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Dr. Thomas Crowther, Assistant Professor of Global Ecosystem Ecology at the Crowther Lab, remind us that precedent exists to tackle global ecological challenges with science and collaboration across business and government. Today, organizations around the world are trying to understand the risks of climate change and address its effects. Here Esri Marketing Program's lead, Ed Loker discuss novel, location-intelligence-based strategies to address climate change.
2: So Tom, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I'm going to start off at the high level. Just tell us a little bit about your research and why it's important. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, our research aims to sort of
0: generate a global perspective on the the living component of our world so that we can better understand how the climate is going to change over the rest of the century and figure out more effective strategies to address climate change. Focusing almost exclusively on climate change, is that where you're... So, my personal interest and inspiration is actually biodiversity. I'm in love with biodiversity and we want to restore it and preserve it as much as possible. But one of the biggest threats to biodiversity at the moment is climate change, and the two go hand in hand. When you lose biodiversity, you also ramp up climate change, and biodiversity is one of the best tools that we have to address climate change. I mean, these ecosystems are millions of years old, they've evolved together to form these complex networks that all interdepend on one another. And we constantly find that when you pluck out one of those components of the ecosystem, others end up failing and collapsing. Consistently, our research is just showing that a a greater combination of species is almost always better for the functioning of the system, the carbon capture, the food production, the medicine production. Yeah, diversity is undoubtedly
2: better. One of your core theories is that while... the research around climate change has been valuable, it hasn't given us the right context to understand what's happening with the climate.
1: Right.
0: So uh, our understanding of climate change at the moment is dominated by the physical sciences. So we have loads of information about the physics and chemistry of our planet, but it's actually the organisms that make our planet different from all the other planets in the solar system. It's called biogeochemistry because it's the biological part that, that drives the carbon cycle, that drives the water cycle and yet we have almost no global scale understanding of those, that bio component. We don't know about the distribution and functioning of the forests or the soil organisms that drive the carbon cycle. So we're, we're trying to explore and understand those, those global scale communities so that we can better predict climate change. And in doing so, it helps us to understand strategies to sort of mitigate it.
2: What were the key facts that made you realize that we needed to take that different approach?
0: So I came from an ecology background, and I see in our field that it's dominated by people trying to become the world's leading expert, which means that people get narrower and narrower and narrower and end up studying the bacterium that lives on the hind leg of a beetle in Thailand. And you do become the world leading expert in that, and your lab ends up dominating that field, but it doesn't really allow you to contribute to climate change discussions or to biodiversity debate. So... Really having the holistic multidisciplinary approach, it, it, it just became clearer and clearer throughout my career. And I, I realized I couldn't answer any global scale questions unless I drew on the knowledge of other experts who have information about satellite data or genetic sequencing. Or You need the full range to address such a big problem. When you bring people together with completely different skills, that's when magic happens. That's when the, the crosstalk that helps us to build our understanding just spirals out of control and we get so much more information. By combining those experts and having them talk to each other and sharing their knowledge and information, it's just been transformative for, for our studies. And, and now we're getting this global perspective, which is coming out really clearly.
2: Within this grand, complex ecosystem of climate science, how important is carbon issue in soil? The soil is
0: it's the largest terrestrial carbon stock, somewhere in the order of 1,000 gigatons. Of carbon is stored in the soil and a large proportion of this is stored for very 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 long time so sequestration of that carbon in the soil it's probably our greatest chance in the fight against climate change so managing soils I I think is the key to addressing to, to, to managing ecosystems in the in the fight against climate change when we get our soils healthy and thriving you'll then see the vegetation healthy and thriving and the the vegetation sucks that carbon out and the soils store it for a very long time. Essentially the concept is, plants take up carbon, either their leaves fall or or the carbon enters the soil through the roots and then they're taken up by microbes and those microbes respire some of that carbon back into the atmosphere. but about 50% of it is stored in their biomass and then they die and it's taken up by other microbes and they die and it's taken up by other microbes and over this incredibly long iterative process carbon just sort of accumulates in a healthy soil so the more organisms that are in there the more that carbon accumulates but we just don't know if human alterations of the planet are going to speed up that process or slow it down and our recent research that we published last year showed that warming in the northern latitudes of the world actually speeds up the respiratory processes of these microbes and so they're kicking out a lot more carbon into the atmosphere and we estimated that that could accelerate the rate of climate change by about 12 to 17 percent soils suck up carbon like a sponge so there are loads of examples where you know farmlands have used cover crops for during the years when they would otherwise be left alone, or no tilling practices, because tilling sort of scuffs up the soil. So there are loads of practices that can increase soil carbon sequestration, and those are going to be critical.
2: So agriculture, um, are there leaders in the space, or are they aware of what you're talking about here on the, how soil and how their agricultural processes can either help or, or retard the carbon in the atmosphere.
0: Yeah, there is a movement in the sort of holistic soil management world to do this. There's all sorts of combined cover crops or agroforestry approaches that are fantastic for sucking up carbon. So there are people leading, but ultimately what it often comes down to is just more diversity, more plant cover, and healthier management for the soils. We've survived thousands of years working with nature and not exploiting it to the fullest. And then in the last hundred years or so, we've really figured out how to dominate it. And it turns out without knowing the full complexity of the system, when we dominate the system and, and turn it into a monoculture or, or do something, we, we mess things up. But still what I'm angling at is more of a, a global scale question that in Europe and North America we've reaped our world pretty extensively and now we're expecting the tropical areas to just sort of stop deforestation and start doing things right. If if we manage to keep forests and in fact increase tropical forests we're all, every one of us is going to be better off so.
2: Forest restoration priorities in your own research Um, how do you prioritize where and how to act? So that it
0: comes into the, the science of where. We've been trying to get big global averages for forest carbon stocks and, and forest biodiversity and, and things like this. But we need that spatial understanding. We need the spatially explicit models that can tell us where the areas of the highest biodiversity are and where the areas of the greatest carbon capture are so that we can target those areas either to conserve them or to even restore in those, those regions.
2: Any specific areas or forests that come to mind that are either ripe for intervention or have been impacted more than some of the others?
0: I mean, generally the tropics. More tree species exist in the tropics than elsewhere, and they take up a lot more carbon and store it for long, long periods. If we can focus our energies on conserving the remaining old forests, the old growth forests are the ones that capture huge amounts of carbon and they store them in their massive biomass, those are the ones we most urgently need to protect. We're losing it at a absolutely devastating rate.
2: Are there any specific technologies that are either that you hold particular hope for, or you're excited about as climate change evolves into this complex world problem that we must address?
0: So there are technological propositions for how we can be more efficient and uh, with with our greenhouse gas emissions and how we can extract carbon from the atmosphere and all sorts of things. But I truly believe that the natural ecosystem is the best tool that we have because we've caused this problem, as you said, by taking charge over nature and and manipulating it. If we try and fix it with another quick fix manufactured thing, I think it's also going to have other knock-on consequences. Natural ecosystems, the magnitude of these fluxes that happen every year are considerably greater than, than the amount of carbon that humans emit. And if Forests are functioning well and, and healthily and managed effectively. I'm certain they can take up the nine gigatons that humans are emitting each year.
2: Can we create a natural ecosystem?
0: I don't think we'll ever restore what was. I mean, it, it'll, it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to restore a really fully functioning old growth forest. So certainly conservation of those forests is, is essential, but allowing natural regeneration of forests is is a beautiful process too, and it promotes diversity and sequestration. So. It depends on, on what your goals for the restoration are. In many cases, I advocate for tree planting because it does speed up the process. And if you're doing it well with the right indigenous species and a good
2: diversity of species, it's great. It does speed the process up. So you were part of a team that recently quantified the number of trees on the planet. Why was that study so important? And why did it generate so much attention, do you think?
0: It's, it's another step in understanding the living component of our biosphere. So you know, we knew where forests existed, but we didn't know information about the, the structure of those forests. If you've ever walked through a very dense forest or a very open forest, you can tell it's vastly different organisms live there, carbon and nutrients are cycled differently. So this spatially explicit information is useful for improving our models. But more directly, it also gives global scale restoration projects targets and, and baseline data that they can set their goals by. Everyone's familiar with trees, we know that their value. and I, I, ju- I don't know. I, it just captured people's imagination to think of such a big number, and figuring out ways to communicate the magnitude of that was quite interesting.
2: So you've built a model. What are some early learnings that you're pulling out of that model so far?
0: Firstly, it shows us regions that where we're losing trees, so we can estimate ten billion trees lost per year. We do see considerable increases in, in forest area and forest growth in the high latitude regions where there's, you know, climate warming is is increasing the the land where forests can exist. And so people talk a lot about the positive side, you know, that forests are growing. But deforestation is firstly, considerably more rapid than that at the moment. We're warming the climate so rapidly, that ecosystems are changing faster than the organisms can adapt. And so they're not able to survive in those ecosystems. And that's to go on a bit of a tangent, exactly the same as with humans, the climate is changing so quickly. A resource shortage means people get forced into cities. Then they migrate a lot, and that contributes to so many of society's, you know, problems. Humans are moving, are, are struggling with climate change as much as the organisms.
2: How do you use location to execute some of these models? And and measure the impact before obviously we need to go down and and plant a trillion trees. And maybe it would be nice to know here gives us the best chance of success versus just scattering seeds in the wind. It's a good question. We've constructed models now that
0: are intended to represent all of the important features that we think are taking place in the biosphere. And those earth system models are what we use to predict the climate, uh, predict how the climate will change. And every time we take this location information, this spatial information, like the density of trees around the world, and we put it into one of those Earth system models and we run simulations, our our models get so much better. And what we can do now is take a trillion trees and put them in one one part of the world and we run the simulation and we see what happens to the climate. Then we put them in a different part of the world and we see what happens to the climate. So we can really target the most important and effective regions
2: to restore and avoid the places where we shouldn't be. Some researchers have argued that we've already reached a tipping point in terms of climate change. What are your thoughts on that? I
0: certainly think we have for many aspects of it. As I say, climate change is so multidisciplinary, there are thousands of species that we will never get back. So that tipping point has been passed. With respect to warming or cooling the planet, I don't think we've reached that tipping point. If we manage to address it on a really multidisciplinary approach, you know, if we have big companies being more efficient, if we cut our fossil fuel emissions, if we set more, more effective greenhouse gas emission scenarios, and we restore natural ecosystems, I certainly believe that we can sequester that, the emissions that we emit. It needs people to, to believe.
2: So you mentioned companies. Um, our audience is composed primarily of business leaders and executives. What can companies and, and businesses do, and the leaders themselves personally do, uh, to help contribute to solutions addressing this, this very complex issue? Right. I mean, I think the
0: first step is recognizing it and, and openly acknowledging it that you are trying to be a, a carbon neutral company and, and, and openly uh, sort of promoting this idea. The next step is improving efficiency wherever you possibly can, particularly uh, in the carbon use and um, production. But then supply chain management is one of the main things that I see as a as a huge issue at the moment massive multinational companies that understandably don't know where all of their resources come from. If you're using palm oil, if you're a massive company and you use thousands of your products have palm oil in it, you don't know where all those palm oil mills are. But there's organizations that work on that supply chain management who can ensure that you're not using palm oil mills that enslave people or cut down primary rainforest illegally. There are people working on this and engaging with those people can help you make the right decisions for sure. But I would argue that the greatest power is actually with us, with, with, the, with the people, because we make the decisions that, that, that put the pressure on those big companies. We we can decide to invest or not invest in organizations that are openly carbon neutral or not. We we make the decisions to guide political decisions. We just need to trust in the, the real science, trust in the real information, and try and engage. So
2: when you take on a uh, an important project, cause, however you want to talk about it, invariably you will come up against resistance. Right. So what are those um, key talking points that you use when you encounter maybe a, a climate science yeah. denier or somebody who's skeptical? Yeah, um, What are those tools that you bring to bear to, to try to help people understand?
0: I'm really glad you asked because I, I actually think that's probably our main stumbling block. There's, there's a huge proportion of our planet that are that are vehemently not believing and it's not because of it's not because they're dumb or because they're not listening to the facts it's because they've come from a different background where they've been told a different story and it's now become a very emotional thing and i think the key is to open up dialogue and just try and discuss in a very mature and and um, and respectful way just saying look this is the background i've come from maybe i've been brainwashed by loads of climate change believers and maybe you have too, so let's have a discussion. I think that's the first step. Scientists have a unique position because, you know, climate change believers, most of them also don't have objective information that's coming out of machines that tells you, you know, we believe what we've read on Facebook or Twitter. And the scientists are actually the ones who really do see that raw data. And we need to be much clearer in communicating our message. I think scientific information gets trapped up in, in science for too long, and it's, it needs to be effectively communicated to, to people. So what gives you the most hope about the future? We've done it before, that the hole in the ozone layer was addressed with the um, Montreal Protocol. And it, that was a massive global issue. That was a, a huge global threat. And it was addressed so effectively by just some basic top-down decision-making. Granted, climate change is a lot bigger and it requires bottom-up action. But I think when, when, when it, it's almost like the, the miscommunication around climate change has, has sort of slowed down our progress. But when 8 billion people get behind an idea, it, we certainly have the potential to, to change the system.
2: I wanna thank you very much for taking the time with us. And hopefully we can talk you into coming back at some point. I'd love to, for sure, that'd be awesome. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to ecologist Tom Crowther for laying out proactive ways businesses and governments can address climate change. Also, this marks the beginning of the second season of the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Thank you for being part of our audience. With each episode, we spotlight insights, stories, and analysis about data, science, location intelligence, and other forces and trends driving digital transformation. To learn more, download our free eBooks, Making Sense of Digital Transformation at esri.com forward slash where, and Making the Most of the Internet of Things at esri.com forward slash IOT.